Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in August of 2015. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. Thomas Paley. Dr. Paley earned his bachelor's degree from Oxford University in both his master's and PhD in economics and international relations from Yale University. Thomas has been featured in numerous prominent journals and has featured in publications such as the Atlantic Monthly, the American Prospect, and the Nation. He previously served as chief economist for the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, an independent arm of government which analyzes bilateral trade between the U.S. and China. Dr. Paley has authored several books, including Restoring Shared Prosperity, Financialization, The Economic Crisis, and From Financial Crisis to Stagnation. Dr. Paley joined the Henry George School to discuss his vision of periods of economic history, how the myth of free markets precluded the reality of mixed market economies, and how financialization changes firms' social behavior. We hope you enjoyed this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Oh, how you doing, Tom? Uh, thanks for uh, joining the show. Uh, I'm going to ask you, in effect, to play the part of John Kenneth Galbraith during this interview, because you're, you're a big picture guy. And I want to cover the big picture in America, economically speaking, from 45 to today. Now, it's, it's true I'm, uh, I'm the president of the Henry George School of Social Science. You would have some idea of Henry George. And that would be an odd uh, advocation for a guy like myself, who was a former CEO of a Fortune 500 company. So as my friends say, uh, capitalist by day, lefty by night. What, what am I doing here? But, you know, I grew up post-45, uh, uh, you know, working class origin, so this country was good to me. Uh, I grew up in manufacturing. Uh, I understand the power of manufacturing. Uh, I think everybody was well-intended, and I think the idea that America at the time had 50% of the manufacturing capability in the world, uh, basically had to lend money to get everyone jump-started. Uh, the thought was that our technology would always keep us in the lead so that even if we free traded and allowed other people to trade with us to build themselves up, it wouldn't really hurt working class or middle class America. I think that, that would be a fair assessment of policymakers, keep in mind, keeping in mind uh, the communist threat. But it didn't quite work out that way. And at some point, uh, uh, they had to uh, go off uh, the gold standard, the Bretton Woods gold standard in 68 and all kinds of pernicious things started to, to happen. The question is, uh, was this foreseen by American elites that eventually we'd have to have a fiat currency, uh, we'd, have to, we'd have to give up some of our man, manufacturing, we would allow free trade, we uh, would lose technical uh, dominance in many areas of, of our country, and in effect, destroy high-wage America for the, for the possibility of creating a, a more stable, long-lasting world. If I'm an investment banker, this is not so bad for me. I mean, I can sacrifice anybody as long as I can, can control military, I can control banking, I can maintain a peace, I can balance off uh, production manufacturing all over the world. 
And if I have to slowly uh, reduce the standard of living of Americans, not a bad price to pay for a, a, a world of capitalism that can maintain itself long into the future. Do you want to comment on that, uh, on that view of things? Well, Andrew, let me go straight to your very first opening introduction of yourself. Uh, capitalist day by day, lefty by night. I don't think they're at all inconsistent. I think the best capitalists understand capitalism, and the lefties have the best description of capitalism. The way to make money is to understand the imperfections in capitalism. Uh, all this stuff about uh, if markets really were efficient like traders and the, 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 the economic theologians say they are, there'd be no space for a lot of uh, what goes on on Wall Street and makes people very rich. And that is sort of straight in one's face proof, in some sense, that the economy doesn't work the way the economic theologians say it does. Uh, now, what you've just described, the 50 years of history you've just described, an awful lot of stuff there. But I think the, um, my big difference with you uh, in that description would be um, the degree of benevolence which you infuse your story. Uh, when I look at the 20th century and running through actually now the, the, the long 20th century, I, I, in, in, at least in economics, maybe not in terms of geopolitics, but the long 20th century running into this neoliberal era which continues, uh, I divide the 20th century into three uh, components. You have the pre-1940 economy, you have the economy from 1940 to 1980, and then you have the post-1980 economy, which we are still inhabiting. Uh, the pre-1940 economy is the pre-New Deal, pre-Keynesian economy. Then you have the period of New Deal Keynesianism, and then you have the neoliberal era. Now, the New Deal Keynesian era, and it is a, I do think one needs to put the two together. Keynes understood the Keynesian aspect of it. Uh, the New Dealers understood uh, the need for particular types of institutions to make it work. And when the two came together, and, they went, and, and it was never really articulated in the academy as such a marriage, but that I think is what actually happened, then you had the successes of what we call the Golden Age. Um, now, that era, the Golden Age, the New Deal Keynesianism, what I call stru structural Keynesianism is the way that I describe it, was not, it didn't fall out of the sky as manna from heaven. It was politically contested. Um, the, it was put in place uh, under the trauma of the Great Depression and in conjunction with the threat of communism coming from the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc. And that's what compelled capitalists to go along with it. And of course, one of the great speeches, one of the great uh, American political speeches is, of course, FDR's speech at um, Madison Square Garden in, I think it's October 1936, when he really confronts the bankers, the businessmen who are trying to put an end to the New Deal, trying to put an end to his efforts to create a more uh, equal, uh, uh, full employment uh, America. It tells us about uh, uh, the political aspect, our political failure. We don't have leaders like uh, FDR anymore who are charting a course, leading the people. Rather, we have leaders who are driven by polls and follow the people. And the people themselves, of course, are being shaped and managed by the media, by television, by the powers that be. But FDR, but FDR could only have been thrown up 
under the most dire circumstances. Keep in mind, uh, uh, it, w it would have been the end of capitalism if he didn't step in and do what he did. Today, no one believes it's reached that point. In fact, uh, saving all of society is probably not a, not a main driver of elites of, uh, of, of today. But my point in raising that, uh, to come back to what you were saying, was that this was done under duress. And the business, the business lobby, the, which has become the modern Republican Party, never really accepted FDR's innovations. They never really accepted the Keynesian innovations. They were opposed to Hayek, Friedman, the Mont Pelerin Society, the, what has grown into institutions like the Cato Foundation, the Heritage Foundation, uh, the Koch brothers today. They come out of that long tradition of hatred towards FDR, hatred towards the New Deal, and hatred towards Keynesianism. They were compelled by political circumstance, in one side, the Great Depression, the political forces it unleashed, there was real possibility of a revolution here in the United States. Side by side internationally, they were pressured by the Soviet Union. That compelled them for 40 years to adopt a form of capitalism, what I call structural Keynesianism, that worked, that delivered shared prosperity in its own way. But anyway, it worked, and they hated it, and they were, they were determined to pull it down, and eventually they succeeded. With Ronald Reagan and, and Margaret Thatcher, they're only the symbols, by the way. The, 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 the woodwork was already rotten, uh, and they pushed through and then made and put in place a new economic paradigm, this neoliberal paradigm, paradigm that has really pulled apart and destroyed shared prosperity and got us into the mess that we are in today. The uh, working class, uh uh, bought into that very strongly and, in effect, uh, helped unlock the uh, Keynesian tradition uh, by its support and fervor for, for, for Ronald Reagan, for example. There, there are people today, working class people, who still die hard Reaganites. Andrew, you're, you're absolutely right about your observations about the working class buying into the rhetoric and, in a way, therefore, uh, 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 collaborating with the system that has inflicted so much, much harm. Uh, in a book that I wrote in 19, uh, 1998 called The Downsizing of the American Dream, there's a section where I talk about this type of political economy, and there are multiple factors behind it. It was so successful that people may have be, be, be come to believe their own rhetoric, that they didn't need unions anymore, they didn't need these uh, economic institutions, they didn't need this balance of power because we'd solved the problem forever, that corporations really were uh, changed, that they were now benevolent social citizens rather than uh, sociopathic predators, always ready to, once the, uh, the constraints are removed from them, they will start to behave in the way that they are meant to behave in a way. If you're a profit-maximizing corporation and you obviously don't have, a, you can't have a sort of a sense of morality, you're not an individual, then the pursuit of that goal when it is unleashed, as it has been by our regulations and our, by our laws and by our political encouragement, it will start to behave in this, these sort of ways. One last thing, they also bought very much into the rhetoric of the Cold War, which put in place these two ideologies. One is we were the laissez-faire economy that worked and delivered these great outcomes, and the other was this planning socialist economy that delivered these terrible outcomes. 
both were caricatures, both were cartoons, but we sort of believed our own cartoons. And I think that spread very deeply into uh, popular American understanding. And by the way, is still there. That's why it can be revived so easily, that fear of the other, and is being revived today vis-a-vis uh, uh, Russia and Putin, and also vis-a-vis, uh, of course, our, our, the struggles in the Middle East. As a corporate executive, I mean, going through that period, there was no, uh, we were never influenced by philosophy or ideology or, or uh, we, we were a steady state company. Uh, we, had, we had worked on such things as the Hubble telescope, uh, for, for, for example. And when Reagan um, fired the traffic controllers, that became kind of a symbol to us that uh, it's open season on uh, labor, but we didn't overtly act on that. And then, of course, we went through price controls, uh, the Nixon price controls, but there was no evil intent or consciousness for the corporation to act any different other than the logic that it always perceived itself uh, being in. And I remember there became a sea change where the, the manager said, the world's changing. The world's changing. Uh, we, can, we can go offshore. Uh, we can get cheaper labor. Uh, and we would be reacting to those incremental bits of information that would come in, but there was never a theme or, 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 or a practice that resulted in the things you see today, where you had wholesale offshoring, uh, where you have the breaking of unions. Uh, the, the corporations themselves, at least at the, at the operational level, were never cognizant of, uh, of those kinds of forces. So you almost have to assume some autonomous blind forces uh, are working and probably at the deep policy level. If I were, again, if I switched myself to the mindset of an investment banker, looking at a big picture, I could say to myself, I really don't care about a national viewpoint anymore. I, I like corporations. I can put them anywhere. I can uh, get cheap labor anywhere. I don't need American uh, purchasing power necessary, necessarily to complete uh, the realization problem on my end of selling products. Yes, it's good, it's, it's good but you know, uh, I'm glad that we're, we're going overseas and getting cheap labor and if we have to borrow money to make up the difference, uh, that's okay because I'm expanding all around the world. I hope you and the viewers don't misunderstand me here. I mean, this is not a critique of uh, the individuals who were corporate officers in 1980. There were many, many of them, very fine people. I'm sure they have their own moral codes. Uh, and, and individually, as you yourself are expressing, many of them have been saddened by what's, what's come about. What I'm talking about, though, is they have to operate within an organization, an institution that has goals, legal obligations, a purpose. And the way it is set up very often is that individuals have to do things as being part of an institution that they might not do otherwise. In fact, we all confront this to some, to some degree, even our, our private lives. I like to distinguish between my interests as private citizen and my interests as public citizen. And even within my own single body, there's a, there's a contradiction. And that contradiction is playing out all the time. Now, the point is, within the, corp the world of the corporations, they had grown and developed and, uh, enormously over a 40-year period within a particular political economy climate. And it had brought the best out of corporations. We will always, if you are in a capitalist economy, 
and I think we will be because the capitalist economy is so productive and so capable of delivering good things, we will need corporations. But we have to make sure that they operate within the right rules and in the right, subject to the right norms, subject to the right regulatory constraints and the larger uh, cultural climate that brings up, that, that restrains the bad part of them and brings out the public citizen part of them. And that's what changed when we made this transition that I've symbolically uh, linked with Margaret Thatcher and, and Ronald Reagan. It, the attitude and views about the corporation and about the, the private market economy changed. We abandoned the thinking that had shaped and informed the period from 1940 to 1980, and we had a, a new type of thinking. And for instance, within the specifics of the corporation, you hear very much about the shareholder value maximization model. That transforms the way the corporation looks at its place in terms of society, looks at its place in terms of what the, who the benefits of the corporation are going to. It becomes a pretext for tremendous short-termism rather than building uh, long-term investment projects that are going to produce massive pro productivity and push new frontiers. Everything becomes about extracting cash, uh, dividends, and driving up stock prices in the here and now. And that change is then connected, of course, to something I know you wanted to talk about uh, called financialization. This is when the corporation, which previously in the 1940 to 1980 period was uh, a, a, a productive enterprise, uh, driving prosperity in the real economy, financialization changes the relationship so that now financial markets becomes become the masters of corporations and the senior officers, the CEOs, the financial officers, the directors, they all identify with the interests of financial markets and indeed are beholden to, to, to those interests. So, uh, and I think finally, um, you were talking about the mindset of executives, which is all part of this. This is sort of the economy is people by people. And sometimes economists, again, this is where they go so wrong in understanding the economy that they don't have psychology, they don't have culture as their variables explaining behavior. Uh, that changed. If you look at a, a business school executive coming out of the Harvard Business School, say, in 1960, with a business school executive coming out in, 19, in 1990, they are going to have very different mindsets about what permissible behavior is. They're going to have different mindsets about how efficient a market, ca uh, 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 a market capitalist economy is. One is brought up under some sort of social restraints, educated on the social restraints of that period, belief and recognition of the limits of market economies. The other is brought up under no restraints, shareholder value maximization, let, the, let, let it rip capitalism, and markets are essentially perfect. Yeah, but that, of course, begs the question of why would it have changed in that, in that 30 years? Something had to make uh, that change worth making at the Harvard Business School level. And I would argue as a, as a, as a, as a, hypo a hypothesis that uh, once executives uh, realize that uh, transportation, control systems, will allow a world market, and that there were other people who had learned American me methods and were using cheaper equipment like Japan and Germany, uh, and became productive, and then uh, China follows along. It's pretty clear that an American with only 6% of the population using 25% of the resources is not going to be able to hold its position forever.
So I'm, I'm not taking a particular um, America-centric view of this anymore, whether it's unconscious or conscious. I'm, I'm good being an international guy. I don't relate necessarily to working in middle-class America. I'm living in a hermetically sealed world with elites all around the world who are, who are building up capitalist structures. What I'm saying is that the reforms that you so champion and so eloquently fight for and your writings and all, your whole history is, 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 is fighting for that. And I get that. But I, I, I think that uh, the, the Roosevelt Democrats, the Keynesian Democrats have been outflanked seriously, and that there is no uh, understanding or idea of saving the national polity in a way that Roosevelt once did. Any comments well, on that? Well, Andrew, your comments raise two sets of issues. One is the history that got us to where we are, and the other is what can we do going forward. I think it's very important that we get the history right. If we don't get the history right, we will sort of misunderstand the political forces that are driving this thing and uh, we will ne never quite be able to calibrate where we want to go. It's important. It's not for nothing that they say that the, the winners get to write history because they get to use history. And so that gets again to the point that I started this with. We can't be too innocent about how the change happened. There always was this opposition, and it was very deep-seated in America, more so, in fact, than in Europe. Uh, when, when we talk about Milton Friedman, the Mont Pelerin Society, the Cato the heritage, something like the Wall Street Journal, uh, it, 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 the, the, the positions they took, they were dedicated to uh, reversing the New Deal. And they always looked for it. And, and then, and then the, the impetus to that conflict or to that reversal grew stronger in the late 1960s and 1970s when you started to have a, a distribution of income and uh, a decline in the profit share that was perceived as very threatening. So they were, uh, and unions were seen as a source of, an alternative pole of political power that had to be reined back in and stopped. So there was a political conflict. Now there was side by side with this going on technical, uh, technological developments and markets expansions that were indeed pushing the economy in an international direction. By the way, my own view, what I've written about this is that I was, I, I've been very uh, favorable to these international expansions of that period. Let me interject right there. I would argue that uh, in any fair reading of history, that the countries that became dominant, uh, especially technically, were ones that uh, you know retain an element of nationalism and autonomy. Absolutely, we were we were still, we were still dealing with national systems. The and you, and you see that in, in multinational um, production arrangements of the period, the American multinational of the 1960s. Does, does not offshore in the way that it does today. It produces in America, and then it has a subsidiary in Europe or in Japan, and it produces locally. So it actually becomes a great source of profit. It may uh, diminish a little bit American exports, but the economy was at full employment. There was no room for the economy to actually supply those exports. What happens then is technology begins to take off and management practice begins to take off and they begin to understand how these pieces can be used to advance profits and to advance a political agenda. So I, I find myself very focused on the rust belt, sun belt competition of the late 70s and the, and the late early 1980s. That is in fact where American 
companies learned to go, go global. They went global within the United States first. They realized we didn't need to have, I mean, if you think of the history of the factory, the Victorian factory has the factory floor and the office above it. Then these things get gradually separated. Then you can actually have a, a headquarters somewhere, a factory in Detroit, and you have a factory in, in Stuttgart building opals and, and GMs in Europe. Then you realize you can actually begin to move this all over the country. You don't have to be in the, the, the Rust Belt, the Midwest, which is uh, unionized. Why don't I basically move my plant to the Sun Belt, to South Carolina was a, a major place where people went, oh, corporations went. Texas, we can there get non-unionized labor that we can pay a whole lot less. Uh, and uh, that is the beginning of globalization. Of course, it doesn't cross an international border, but in principle, it's the same. And you're beginning to have the communications technologies uh, and the beginnings of the, the, the IT revolution that enables this remote control, or this remote management, rather. And that has just gone completely global now. Everything has uh, is so much cheaper to do, so much more efficient to do. In fact, what we have, what I like to call uh, barge economics, and I, I take that, uh, I use that term to describe the global economy from Jack Welch's comment about I would like to have, uh, if I could, every factory I have on a barge that could float between countries to take advantage of conditions. Now, conditions can be exploitable labor, lack of environmental standards, lack of production regulation, uh, an undervalued currency. But that has become the metaphor that describes the global economy. And that is a completely different economy from the international economy of the 1960s, where the factories were not on barges. They were being put in major market areas in Europe uh, and, and, and in, in South America. And they weren't going to float around. They were going to serve those local markets. But, but okay, but you notice that Germany, who's uh, part, of the, part of the game in Japan, and now China, are very careful to husband the manufacturing or the learning by doing uh, technologies within their borders. Y yes, what you say is all true, but there are pockets of major countries who have maintained and kept together their workforces. Now, what happened in Germany did not happen in a social vacuum. It has a different social structure from here. The unions were much more powerful, particularly the industrial unions. They have this phenomena called works councils where unions are embedded in the management of the corporation and know what's going on. Furthermore, in the U.S., we already had the example of successful multinationals. They'd gone, they'd gone multinational in the 1950s in a way that German companies didn't have. And they were the elite, both in finance and in industry. And so they would be pushing that model. And then again, even within Germany, it's not true that it didn't happen at all. There has been quite a bit of, uh, uh, of outsourcing and offshoring, but it's actually taken the form of going to the, the, uh, the Czech Republic, the Slovak Republic. Poland has been a big uh, uh, force for that. They've built major autobahns connecting Eastern Germany with Central Europe, where the, the, the labor force is cheaper. By the way, they did transfer technology to China. Uh, again, getting into the game later than the Americans, they don't seem to be quite as a, a, as greedy as the American executive is, or as uh, or as compelled. Maybe market conditions are, are, are different. We do tend to see ourselves that everyone will become American. 
that this is the, man, this is an, the latest uh, expression of manifest destiny. And I think that the ideal here that our elites, I'm talking about our financial Wall Street elites and the CEOs who are aligned with Wall Street hope to make, is they're going to make a deal with the Chinese that we're all going to come on board and run this thing and they're going to sh- pass the wealth between themselves. The ignorance of history is a great danger here. Henry Ford said history is bunk, reflecting a sort of an American attitude towards history. I know that the, uh, I, I don't meet many CEOs, it's not my, 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 my position, but even in Washington in the, 19, in, the, in the 1990s and early 2000s, when I was working at the China Commission, the absolute lack of, uh, of knowledge of the history of China and what was likely to be the Chinese attitude towards this implied colonialism and by the way, of course, when I talk about history, well, what about Iraq? The absolute lack of knowledge of the history of Iraq and the trouble it's gotten us into. These are all examples of it, but they, 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 they go to explain, they help explain, plus along with the factors I've already talked about, about local business culture and so on, why these two countries, Germany and the US, have gone in different directions or slightly different directions in this important time economic globalization. You're a social reformer of the deepest sense and a smart one. Uh, how, how would you save the American polity in, in, in ways that we once remember, given what's gone on so far? Um, I do see that there, there are possibilities and it is possible to do much better than we're doing but you're absolutely right, it's going to be difficult. One of the worst features of neoliberalism, which, by the way, is why I object so very strongly to the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the uh, fast-track authority uh, votes, is the name of those games is to create what I call lock-in. You put in place a treaty, arrangements, from which it's extremely difficult to extricate yourself. In fact, it's so difficult and maybe so disruptive that the choice basically falls off the table. So we have to take very seriously this problem of lock-in and we have to take very seriously, behind lock-in is design of institutions and that gets us back to New Dealism, structural Keynesianism, what are the institutions that can make the economy work? Now, I do think that we have opportunities here. We need to address things like the currency manipulation question is very key. And we're going to have to sequence these things. Some, some changes will be put in place later, others earlier. We need to get re- revive the economy. Uh, that's, that's the sort of fiscal policy, monetary policy debate, and more. Get us back to full employment. But then we need to change the rules of the game to keep us there. So we can do things like the minimum wage. We can certainly do things like um, encouraging the growth of, uh, of unions, make union membership and organizing easier. We can do things like public investment. We can do a lot of things regarding taxation and the financing of the things like we need, like education and the healthcare system. Uh, the, the Obamacare, I'm, I'm, I'm quite a critic of it because they didn't make a public option available. It becomes like a sort of a way of actually financing insurance companies. There's a very simple uh, change you can make. I think you need to go more than that. I will never believe in just financing medical care. You're going to make, have to have some sort of controls on the production of medical care. Because if you just agree to give a blank check to the healthcare system, it will bleed you dry. That's exactly why healthcare production is so much more expensive in the US than it is in Europe. 
we had Medicare, but we never put any restraints on the production of uh, healthcare. So there, you're going to have to think a whole a, a range of institutions that give us possibilities begin to extract us from this lo- this lock-in, and in fact, I like to think of it politically and strategically as locking us in on the progressive trajectory. That's how I'd like to talk about our uh, our conversation. Of course, we don't get it from. Uh, the, the sort of type of politicians we have right now. Well, we're going to need new politicians. You're going to get Hillary Clinton, uh, and she's talking the talk. She's uh, she enumerated uh, Saturday all the good things she's going to do. She understands exactly the points in contention. But again, uh, the American people uh, really don't have a consensus on actually what happened. There was a poll recently that 57% of the American people think that Hillary Clinton is not to be trusted. But three quarters of those people say they will vote for her. There's not much you can do with an electorate that thinks like that. And I think they're going to play this hand out unless there's a real uh, surge, a popular surge in the American people uh, that basically blows the lid off this. And that one is hard to foresee. Because if you walk out in even New York City and ask 100 people, differently. What's wrong with this country? You'll get a hundred different answers. And without a consensus, it's pretty hard uh, to get action. As long as the American people are are fed to a certain extent, and they sink slowly to a certain extent, uh, there will be, I cannot foresee any major change in uh, policy. That's why, you know, in in a way I'm a Georgist, because I say there are a couple of fundamental strikes you can make against this. For, For example, taxing uh, monopolies on nature, land, and so forth. They make that a prime tax, and you break at the source the ability to, to, to lend money against unearned incomes. And all of these things would unlock many of the uh, contingencies that evolve because you don't have a big anti monopoly tax. We have two issues. One issue is Hillary Clinton, and the other issue is what are the American people capable of doing? I don't see Hillary Clinton as a radical trigger at all. I think she's very cut from the same cloth as Bill Clinton. Uh, Bill Clinton, uh, I wrote in a blog recently about how I understand the Clinton team. That's a great quote from General Juan Perón of Argentina. Uh, Perón said that a country is like a guitar. You pick it up with the left hand and you play it with the right hand. And that summarizes exactly the Clinton program. They're going to run populist, but I believe that they are anchored deeply in this sort of Wall Street Democratic wing, and they cannot deliver on it. And my test for Hillary Clinton, which I put down in that blog, is that what you have to do, if you want to make Hillary Clinton a progressive, because she's not, she will, she will never choose to be on her own she may choose to be because she's forced to choose. That's what I'm so I'm so, I'm so enthused by uh, Bernie Sanders' participation. He is forcing her to answer the questions that Sanders is raising. She would not raise those questions and she would not give those answers if Sanders wasn't there pushing her. What you have to do is find certain programs that are s- sufficiently specific that they tie the the politician down, but sufficiently big that they nail the character of the administration. And in this article that I wrote about uh, uh, 
Hillary Clinton's uh, campaign, I, I put out three. One is I would like to see right away, there's no reason why she can't do it, to say that we're going to put a public provider option into Obamacare. Number two, we're going to expand Social Security. We're not into privatizing it. We're going to actually increase the benefits, and we're going to break this cycle of trying to kill America's number one most successful program. And number three, I'm not talking about uh, trade. She's not going to accept any trade agreement that doesn't have that that does not exclude this investor-state dispute settlement provision that undermines national sovereignty and that does not include provisions to deal with currency manipulation. Those are very specific, specific things. They are of the nature that once you make those commitments, you can't run away from them. And they're sufficiently big. Now, my, my view of what it means to be a social democrat is far more than that. But those are the type of tests that one can, um, uh, litmus tests, that one can realistically impose on the Clinton campaign and force her to go to a place where she wouldn't want it to be. Clinton, Bill Clinton, Obama, none of them are the political leaders of the 1930s and 1940s. And my two favorite leaders, American politicians, across the history of American politics, in fact, are probably are FDR and Harry Truman. Why? Because the essence of being a leader is to potentially go against your base to do something that is unpopular and thereby educate your base to realize this is where they wanted to go. This is the exact opposite of the dynamic in Washington today, which is about polling, where you poll your base, find what they want, and then offer it to them. Now, where did your base learn, discover what it wants? Well, it's been conditioned. And the conditioning process has been, I think, led by the Republicans led by the Rupert, Mur Rupert Murdoch's of the world, led by the corporations of the world. This is where all this stuff about money, politics, and media becomes so important. We have to have a force against that. Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and even Obama, m massive political talents, so compelling, and yet not used to do that. Challenging the people you lead. That's what FDR did. That's what Harry Truman did. That's what Abraham Lincoln did. And we don't have, our politicians are so far from that today, and polling is our terrible sin. Well, Tom, thank you for, for the time. We'll do this another time. We'll maybe pick a theoretical Keynesian as a topic, which you're an expert at. Thank you very much. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.